and her library loan. The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood Hello everyone and welcome back to Interlibrary Loan, the show where a couple of friends get together, read a dense book, and then come talk about it. Uh, if you are just joining us, I hope you will rewind just a couple of episodes to join us at the beginning of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Today we are discussing... should always have this in front of me. Okay, here it is. Uh, section 7, Night, and Section 8, Birthday. I'm Katie. I'm Sky, And I'm Lauren. All right. So then jumping right on in to this uh, first section, section seven, night, we join of Fred uh, and she is lying in bed. Still trembling. Yes. Because so uh, last week, I'm not sure if we actually mentioned this last week, but so at the end of last the last section, she had this encounter with Nick. Right. So clearly Nick has been flirting with her for a while, um, which is not a thing that he should do. Um, And he tells her at the end of this last section that the commander wants to see her. So that's where she is right now. And uh, we jump in and yeah, she's trembling. All of these night sections sort of have the same uh, setup where Alfred is you know, lying in bed and just thinking. And it's sort of this direct monologue of her thoughts and her dreams and her feelings. And so this one is about what has happened to Luke. Um, She describes uh, what she believes has happened to Luke, and she describes Luke lying dead in the woods when they made their escape. And then she says, I also believe that Luke... Luke is sitting up in a rectangle somewhere um, and describes Luke in prison. And then she describes Luke having joined the resistance and (laughs) breaking her out of there, like in the Matrix or something. Exactly. So this is um, another example of that. So earlier we had talked about her thinking of her daughter Um, saying that it was easier to just believe that her daughter was dead rather than that she was alive out there somewhere and in who knows what kind of state. Um, So here she is imagining these various states of Luke. And so I feel like this is the same kind of thing. Like, is it easier to imagine him lying dead in a ditch somewhere? Is it easier to imagine him in a, like, in a prison cell somewhere? Is it easier to imagine him being some leader of some resistance that is surely going to come break her out? I thought this section was really interesting because it seems that, like, her contradictory believing isn't just because she doesn't know really what to believe or what makes her feel better, but she also says that it's in order to make her prepared for whatever the reality really is. Right, Right. because I guess if you've already accepted any possible reality... Or, or is that her thinking that if I've already accepted any possible reality, it'll be easier to accept that reality once I know that it's real? I think that's exactly what she's she's getting at. Yeah, in some ways, this is like Schrodinger's Luke. Like, Luke is <laughs> in the box, and we don't know if Luke is alive or dead. And so, 
We until, must believe that he is both until the box is opened. Right. <laughs> until we can observe the state of Luke, the actual state of Luke. Yeah. So that part, that whole section where she's talking about Luke, this this ends with... Um, uh, so she says, The things I believe can't all be true, though one of them must be. But I believe in them, in all of them, all three versions of Luke at one and at the same time this contradictory way of believing seems to me right now the only way i can believe anything whatever the truth is i will be ready for it but then the next line though she says this is also a belief of mine this also may be untrue so maybe she won't be prepared for whatever happens right right and that's that's i feel like the philosophical question is even though if she tells herself that i can be prepared for any of these realities can you really but then also at the end of this uh are these two very important words in hope which are so it's the it's a gravestone i find the idea of the words in hope being engraved on a gravestone as like very pessimistic in nature Um, i don't know do you uh, I don't know. I think, like, so the the passage here says, one of the gravestones in the cemetery near the earliest church has an anchor on it and an hourglass and the words, in hope. In hope. Why did they put that above a dead person? Was it the corpse hoping or those still alive? Does Luke hope? I think this question, was the corpse hoping or those still alive? is is sort of like the key i kind of feel like it's those still alive who are hoping right they're hoping that their dead loved one has like met a good and peaceful fate just as alfred is hoping that luke has met a good and peaceful fate you know sort of and in sort of each of these three stories she tells herself about luke she hopes like you know she hopes like well if his death if he's dead i hope his death was like quick and as painless as possible and she hopes, like, you know, if he's in the resistance, I hope he breaks me out of here and we find our daughter and live happily ever after. Um, I don't know if there's a I don't know if there's really a, a, a lot of hope in the prison scenario, but um, <laughs> but there's this seems like a really stark contrast between you know what this what this entire society seems to be about which is like kind of at least feigned certainty in what they believe and this idea of in hope in hope introduces this idea of doubt that you don't really know what's coming after and it's like it's exposing a vulnerability that these people don't at all seem to be comfortable with so i think it's kind of interesting that she ends this passage talking about this idea of in hope after someone's died right because isn't the so the 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 one pillow where where is it in the house that just says faith oh yeah i want to talk about these pillows yeah the pillows so she says there's supposed to be another one that says uh um hope hope and another one that says charity that says charity yes 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 uh but of course we only have the faith one so and that because yeah as you say this is a tenant of this society that it's it's entirely faith-based well but she she posits that because serena joy would not throw out two of the three pillows she posits that one of the two pillows is in the room of rita and Mm -hmm. one of the two pillows is in the room of cora and i was wondering 
what you guys thought about which person got which pillow. Uh, which which of the Marthas is it that's that's nicer to her? I can never keep them Cora. straight. Cora. 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 I feel like, well, I don't know. Hope and charity. I feel like Rita is the character who needs to be taught to be more charitable. So yeah. she should probably have the charity pillow. So she, in- so she, yeah, to remind her of that virtue. <laughs> yeah. Um, because she seems like, you know, very bitter and eager to exact punishment on, you know, in any way that she can. Whereas like Cora later in this, in this section, she's like, she's actually like hopeful at the prospect of new life coming into their world. So yes, this passage is in chapter 23. Um, Rita may disapprove of me, but Cora does not. Instead, she depends on me. She hopes and I am the vehicle of her hope. Yeah. Her hope is of the simplest kind. Uh, and then she describes how uh, Cora wants to have... Wa- Cora wants... A birthday. Uh, a birthday of her of, of the, in the household so that, you know, she can care for a baby and complete the, you know, the sort of expectations of the, the society that they live in. But that's the thing, like... Cora's a little nicer to a friend, but, like, Cora is totally, like, engaged with and, like, buying into the, like, craziness of this society, whereas Rita is, like, extremely skeptical of it. So, like, as a, you know, like, we, like, Cora is a lot nicer to the narrator, but as a reader, I'm much more sympathetic to Rita than I am to Cora. I think that's totally fair i mean i think if i were in this world i would be rita in like undercooking somebody's chicken yeah right i mean cora cora is like an uncle tom man like cora has like bought into the whole system that oppresses her like completely yeah and rita's she's she's gonna very subtly subvert the system yeah yep (laughs) microaggressions man yes yes so i guess maybe cora gets the hope pillow and um and Rita gets Rita the gets charity. the charity pillow. It's the crossword game you've played all your life, but never quite like this. Um, I like this part. This is uh, I sit in the chair and think about the word chair. It can also mean the leader of a meeting. <laughs> it can also mean a mode of execution. It is the first syllable in charity. It is the French word for flesh. None of these facts has any connection with the others. These are the kind of litanies I use to compose myself. This is like bringing up the recurring theme in this book that language and words become solace and sanity in this in this world. Mm-hmm. And this is also a very subtle form of subverting this world her her world because she's forbidden to be able to read or write so any kind of wordplay that she can do with herself is like a way i mean you know it doesn't give her any power necessarily in the society but it can make her feel power can we speculate a little bit about what a fred did in oh, like what bef- her day job like what was? was her day job because like she's like she seems to be like a fascinating woman i mean she yeah. seems super intelligent and you know but i can't tell how much of that is margaret atwood and how much of that is like this is a really interesting character 
Yeah, I'd like to think that if Fred was a scholar in her previous life. I don't know. I think I honestly think all the scholars are murdered now. Like, I think a Fred is where she is and all the handmaids are where they are because they were not intellectual enough to be murdered. I don't know. I think if she towed the line and she has like she has something that's valuable to this society, which is a working womb. Yes. So, you know, so I think if she towed the line and was able to like, you know, just like submit that she could totally become a handmaid, even if she were like an educated scholar and academic. Because she would be smart enough. Right. I I don't know. I guess I'm not. I don't know if I see her as an academic type necessarily. I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't rule it out. I think it's interesting that like Margaret Atwood gives us very little to go on as far as like what her professional life was. But she's. Um, I mean, she's educated enough to know. She's hinted that she she knows French. I think on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. And she's you know she likes wordplay and makes all kinds of really interesting observations about the people and the world around her. She's I, I not... mean, so do the three of us, but none of us are academics. Okay, but, but I mean, but do we do that in our daily lives as we're going about looking at thing by thing? I... I so have you guys ever seen, oh, what is the name of this documentary? There's this documentary about Will Shorts, the guy who uh, edits the New York Times crossword puzzle, and he does this. Um, and so they they film him at one point they'd film him like driving around and it's one of those shots where like he's driving the car and the camera person is in the like passenger seat filming him as he's just driving around his like town in Connecticut or wherever he lives I don't remember I watched this movie like 12 years ago probably but like he's just driving around and doing exactly that so he like passes by a sign for a pet store that says Noah's Ark and he goes Oh, yeah, look at that sign. See? Noah's Ark. You know, if you turn the S and the H around, it reads, No! A shark! Like, that's the kind of guy that this guy is. <laughs> that he just, like, does that constantly. I mean, so that sounds maybe that's like a Fred. <laughs> so maybe, are you saying a Fred writes crossword word puzzles for the New York, New York Times in the before times? Judging by her Scrabble performance, it's a distinct possibility. <laughs> Scrabble, starring Chuck Willary, is produced in association with Exposure Unlimited. This program is based on the Scrabble brand crossword game. So she plays two games. She th- So this is uh, at the very end of this section. She's playing Scrabble with the commander. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, yeah, she's clearly quite skilled. She says she wins the first game and then lets him win the second. And if you look at the words that she uses, too, I mean, those are those are some easily some triple word scores. Yeah. You know, so uh, so with, I with wanna, some great letters. I want to quote the uh, the words that she lists as having played in the Scrabble game: larynx, valence, quince, zygote, limp, gorge. I think it's really interesting that she chose to play zygote. As in did front- I. That was great. I was like, that's, that is some just passive aggressive gold right there. It's also a like money Scrabble word. Like it's also a word that like will get you a ton of points in a Scrabble game. So it's got this like, it's this double one up on the commander because it's not only a great Scrabble word, but it's like this weird, uh, like reproduction related, uh, word 
Yeah, she's using so so like the entire household. She talks about uh, them depending on her, right? To mm-hmm. to to produce a baby, and um, so yeah, here she is using the word zygote to like overcome the commander who is obviously in this position of power over her. Yeah, that's 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 money. Um, this this scene is really interesting to me. This is when the you know after all of this um, like build up and and dread, uh, of Fred finally goes to the commander's like private study where not only his, not even his wife is allowed to go, and you know we sort of expect the worst or some craziness, and he just sort of is like. I want you to play Scrabble with me. I know that's weird, but like, you want to play Scrabble? It's weird, but it's also scandalous because what is Scrabble? Scrabble is writing. Scrabble is words. Uh, It's language and reading. And this is something that's absolutely forbidden. Um, but for women, at least, yeah, for for and, women. And and for the, it's so crazy because like in the world of this novel, this is like the height of. You know, treason yeah and yet for us the reader we're like oh this is like almost funny like well for her know. too she talks about how it's like the game that like old people play and like like you keep in the back of your cupboard with like your christmas wrappings and stuff it's it's it is this kind of banal game to a lot of yeah, Lauren, Lauren doesn't like Scrabble. I don't really like Scrabble fine. I, I just, love Scrabble. I, I, I like Scrabble fine. I just get bored with Scrabble sometimes. I love Scrabble. Scrabble is fantastic. Uh, but but it, but it's true that it that you know it it takes a certain kind to to enjoy Scrabble maybe. And yeah, I I, I do agree that Fred is digging at it but but it's also so this is so it's super scandalous that he's telling her he wants to play scrabble with her um because he's so he's telling he's basically giving her um like the gift i guess maybe of using language using words reading and writing uh but it's also so she can't refuse it um and she and she can't really accept it. I don't know. It's just another one of these moments where she she really has no response. No matter what she does, she's not in a position of power here. Can we just look at the some of the other words that she's that she has used here? Like she uses the word limp and then the word gorge like right after like one after the other. Like she's like like all of these you could interpret so, like you could infuse some kind of meaning from mm-hmm. the rest of the story like like even valence which is kind of like it's like a curtain that goes like above your window it's like there's all these references to veils throughout the throughout the novel quince it's like a fruit and they keep talking about fruits throughout the entire she keeps talking about fruits throughout the entire novel mm-hmm. um gorge she was just talking about all of the the commanders wives gorging themselves you know after the birthday or you mm-hmm. could make it like a or you could counter it with limp and like engorge mm-hmm. sure right yeah so she's some... totally 
making a phallic reference here. Yep. Yeah. Some some great dick jokes here in the Handmaid's yep. Tale. Yep. Larynx because she's like, it's like this. It's this. She's talking about the vocal or- organ, but she's basically silenced the entire time. Yeah. Some, yeah, this some whole fun, game is some great. fun wor- some yeah, some great wordplay here. And what's interesting is the whole time the commander is giving her in some sense this weird crazy gift. Um on the other hand, it seems like the commander is basically just doing it for his own amuse like not amusement like she he's like messing with a Fred, but like he seems genuinely lonely and just wants someone to play Scrabble with. Well, but it's also, so at the beginning of this scene, it's it's comical. And we've seen uh, the way that Fred describes certain things. Like, she, she has some wit. And um, so when she walks into the room, like, she's making fun of the way that the commander is standing. Yes. Like, she says he's standing in front of the fireplace, like, and standing as if he's been, po- like, he's posing there. It says, uh, it's such a studied pose, something of the country squire, some old come on from a glossy men's mag. Uh, and so she's like, you know, he, he he totally has been planning this and everything is, every move is calculated. And it's, she's just totally making fun of him, which is great. When I knocked, he probably rushed over to the fireplace and propped himself up. He should have a black patch over one eye, a cravat with horseshoes on it. So she, yes. she sees the absurdity of the situation and she like, and the humor of it. And despite the fact that like she has no power and it's terrifying, she still thinks it's funny. Oh, hello. Right. I didn't see you there. I was too busy <laughs> playing Scrabble. Would you come join me? Step into my office. Like, that's exactly what's happening right now. The commander is trying a to ridiculous, play it cool. silly man. Yeah, trying to play it cool, but clearly not being cool. Um, and then at the end of the thing, after all this, he still gets to be a creepy, gross dude and be like, hey, can you kiss me? And then she does, and then he's like, no, can you do it like you're into it? What a and douche. She, yeah. Yeah. And But then her response is perfect. He was so sad, is what she says in response to that. That is a reconstruction too, is the last line, though. So it's like, it's like he's playing with her. He's got these like puppy dog eyes and a little bit about like how what he really wants is for her to mean it well wait what when you know this so in this chapter begins by a fred talking about reconstruction and for when when she's talking about reconstruction basically what she's saying is like you know i'm not writing this down this isn't my journal this is me remembering things it's sort of in my head oh yeah and it's and you know that's unreliable and and she herself realizes that and so whenever she's telling a story she wants us the reader to understand that these are sort of reconstructed memories after the fact and aren't always you know the way that they really occurred so i mean you know when she said he was so sad that is reconstruction too what that means is like at the time maybe he didn't appear to be so sad but only later did she realize oh you know he was real sad whether she's like only realizing it after a fact or whether she's kind of like embellishing or reading into what he was doing yeah that makes more sense because he's you know she also says like she has this fantasy that she describes where she pulls a uh moira moira Moira. Moira. I'm sorry, last week I was pronouncing her name Myra. For some reason, I thought that that name was just another way of spelling Myra, but it's Moira. I've, I guess, never met anyone named Moira. <laughs> but welcome, Moira. In this chapter, Moira goes, like, 
secret Whoa. agent and like <laughs> pulls off an incredible stunt. But in any case, she has so a, a Fred has this fantasy that she pulls up Moira and you know basically murders the commander. And she then says, like, you know, that was a reconstruction. Like, I didn't think about that at the time. I only thought about that later. But I kind of wish I had thought about it at the time. A seven-letter word. The clue is they can bring you to your knees. Do we want to go back and talk about uh, the, like, things in between the first part and the last part yeah. that we skipped over? <laughs> yeah, so these were... those. This were, is a non-linear we, podcast. Yeah. We, we've gotten the, the bookends of kind of the main event of uh, the reading that we did for today was, of course, birthday, and that is um, the the birth of Janine's baby. So, well, Janine's, but not Janine's, we'll just say. Oh, Janine's, her voice of raw egg white. <laughs> well, I love the way she describes Janine. It's just, it's, it's but, so I mean, great. we yeah. all know a Janine, right? <laughs> like she, well, like, Fred has described her before as sucky Janine. <laughs> That's right, I forgot about Sucky Janine Yeah, like, you know, we, we've talked before about Yeah, there's not a whole lot of comic relief in this book Except for uh, Fred's wit Because, and, and, and yeah, some the way that she describes certain people And yeah, Sucky Janine, indeed um, But but so basically, uh, here we are on the birthday And um, the red siren comes and uh, of Fred is loaded on with the rest of the handmaids and they go to Janine's commander's wife's house. <laughs> so something that that I found interesting was so she often refers to commander's wife. So the handmaids names as we've noted are of Warren, of Glenn, of Fred. And then she says uh, wife of Warren I think. Isn't yeah, it? like they yeah. don't get names either. Yeah, well, and but they they do they do have names, but 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 also are referred to as wife of the man. But of course, it's two words. It's not. It's 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 more a title than like a demeaning name. Sometimes guys try to talk their girls out of it. And to you, the word is blouse. I believe. Sometimes guys try to talk their girls out of the blouse. And this, that's right. Is when the blue mobile arrives. Yeah. Oh yeah, when she's uh, chowing down on those eggs and toast. No, the, no that was that's before. the red mobile. The, yeah, that the was the red, red birth mobile. Yes. Yeah. I still like. I kind of like the sound of blue mobile. The blue mobile. <laughs> I don't think that's what it says, but I thought I like it that's anyway. That's the name of my like Bobby Darren cover tribute act, Blue Mobile. <laughs> I tell you. Well, he didn't even give you a chance on that one, Christy. Building on the letter no. L and blouse, Christy. Eight letters in the word. The clue is they're bodybuilders. Oh, yeah, yeah, here it is. The commander's wife, the wife of Warren. Um, yeah, she's talking about, uh, so they've arrived at the house, and um, she's describing the setup. And, yeah, rem- in reference to the commander's wife, says the wife of Warren. Hmm. Uh, which is entirely different than of Warren the Handmaid. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, th- so this whole ritual is as absurd as the the ceremony that we had talked about last time. Uh, and so 
the handmaids kind of all have their um their customs and yeah, yeah yeah and then the wives are in an entirely different space they're not really there for the birth no they're there to like pig out like she says yeah what did you guys think on page 115 there's this whole passage where they're basically talking about janine um like she is a good to be traded or like she's they're talking about all of her characteristics and um let's see a strong girl, good muscles, no Agent Orange in her family. We checked the record. You can never be too careful. And perhaps one of the kinder ones. Would you like a cookie, dear? And the way they talk about her. Yeah, it's like the way that people in the antebellum South talked about, like, trading slaves. Oh, absolutely. Because they are. They're, well, they're slaves, but they're also goods. And they're also, because as Fred has, has said, they are, they're a uterus, a, a womb on legs. Um, their purpose is to provide this gift for the household. That's their duty. Um, they are reduced to their reproductive function. Right, right. And I think they, she uses the phrase sacred vessel, which is so odd because, yeah, they are. Um, they're they're the sacred vessel of uh, ambulatory chalices, she says, two-legged wombs um, that that are capable of bearing children. Um, so so they are very important. Um, and there's just this stark contrast between that and the and the way that they're uh, described by the wives. Like, as if they're animals, basically. Um, the And interesting, so the wives arrive, and um, Afred notes that not every commander has a handmaid because some of the, their wives have children, and then quotes, from each according to her ability to each according to his needs, which they recited three times after dessert. It was from the Bible, or so they said. St. Paul again in Acts. Um... I don't think all of our listeners would be surprised to know that that is not from the Bible. That is something that Karl Marx said. <laughs> um, so, like, and it's a, I mean, it's, it's like one of the maybe top five most famous quotations by Karl Marx. I mean, that is definitely not from the Bible. But I think it's interesting. I wanted your guys' read on whether the narrator knows that this is not from the Bible and is being sly about it, right? Like, it was from the Bible, or so they said, St. Paul again in Acts. Like, can you believe that they're telling me that this is from the Bible? Or if she herself doesn't know. Well, and I think that's that's an interesting point to make because we've said before, and Fred has demonstrated before, that she doesn't necessarily have a very clear memory uh, always of the before times and whether it's just because she's become accustomed to uh her current reality or what um i don't know but i i i liked i like to think that yeah it was from the bible or so they said she 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 has doubt uh but maybe she just can't quite remember i wonder if it's doubt though or if it's like almost like sarcasm like it was from the bible or so they said 
St. Paul again in Acts. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I can definitely see an, a version of, of Fred who is perfectly aware that this is a quotation by Karl Marx and not from the Bible, but is sort of like either out of self-preservation, because she often says that like, oh, you can't let reality get to you too much because then you'll just go insane. Or mm-hmm. out of a sense of satire almost, like she's she's sort of laying it on thick about like, how absurd it is that they're claiming that this is from the Bible. Well, I think we have to remember, too, is that she has been programmed to constantly doubt herself and mm-hmm. to, and to you know, defer to the claims and judgments of people who have a higher social status than she does. And so, you know, for her saying, or so they said, she may think that she knows that that is not actually from the Bible, but she doesn't have that kind of confidence to be able to say no damn it that's Karl Marx you guys are idiots yeah what do we what do you guys think about these um radical christians appropriating karl marx to their own ends that doesn't seem very fundamentalist of them now does it you get Lawrence giving me this terrible look <laughs> I was not raised in a fundamentalist house, and to a certain extent, Lauren was. So, you know, we can cut this out if if you're not comfortable talking about no, it. No, I just like, have no idea. Like, right, I like, like, well, I think that's what's so interesting about this to me, because, like, I assumed that these were the, you know, fundamentalist evangelicals I knew, I, I know in real life, gone sort of horribly wrong, but they seem to be pretty chill with just, like, freely appropriating Karl Marx, which seems strange. Well, I think it's part of kind of a lazy anti-intellectual culture that grabs onto anything they think sounds good, and they'll attribute it back to the Bible because it's convenient. I don't know that it's actually that they, like, are consciously taking something from Marx and reappropriating it. Hmm. Or, like, retweeting Mussolini. Uh, right. Yeah. The Mussolini <laughs> quote and saying that you know, it doesn't matter who said it. It's the quote that's great. No, no. That's, no. that's not how that works. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I but like then, the pronouns in this in this uh, quotation of Marx, too. For, from each according to her ability to each according to his needs. Mm-hmm. It's a, an interesting mm-hmm. twisting of, uh, of Marx there. Yeah. Uh, but this is followed by something that I, I, I don't know if it made you think of it, but it, so we were talking about trying to understand that Sufi proverb from, uh, from the, um, the, ep- uh, the epigraph, yes. epigraph um, yes. in the desert, there is no sign that says thou shalt not eat stones. Right. So, um, I, this, this made me think of that. So, um, and this is directly after that uh, incorrect Bible quote. Uh, you are a transitional generation, said Lydia. It is the hardest for you. We know the sacrifices you are being expected to make. It is hard when men revile you. For the ones who come after you, it will be easier. They will accept their duties with willing hearts. She did not say because they will have no memories of any other way. She said because they won't want things they can't have. So that, that interpretation... I mean, there are a couple of possible interpretations, I feel, or, you know, several of that Sufi proverb. In the desert, there is no sign that says thou shalt not eat stones. Uh, the first, for me, being uh, you, you should just know not to eat rocks. You shouldn't have to be told not to eat rocks. Um, but the second also, or one, uh, another one also maybe being 
like if you've eaten rocks all your life how do you know not to eat rocks yeah yeah so i mean two very different interpretations but i don't know both could be but yeah in the desert there is no sign that says thou shalt not eat stones he's our champion he's a comedy workshop instructor originally from fort lauderdale florida patty calkins so back to birthday and sucky janine and sucky janine well they have so she this this passage just like the rest of the novel is like riddled with flashbacks and so while this birth thing is going on we're also cutting back to the um to the center and her you know and her experiences there with the other girls and with moira and there is um a passage where she describes aunt lydia showing them uh old movies except they aren't (laughs) they aren't the kind of old movies that you know that you think about like it's not like going to see singing in the rain yeah they're not watching ghostbusters no these are horrifying (laughs) uh and and they're and but it's it's like used for shock value right they show them like an old porno or something or they showed uh women being slowly cut into pieces and so aunt lydia uses these images and says consider the alternatives uh like as if to say this you know this was the entirety of women's existence that's what it used to be aren't you glad that this isn't uh, a thing now but i you know i totally get why like i can totally see something like this happening i was a foreign exchange student with rotary after high school and we had to go through this like orientation week and rotary is like really strict about their kind of moral code and one of the things that you're not supposed to be doing while you're on exchange is dating and during my orientation i kid you not they sat us down in a big room turned off the lights and projected a bunch of pictures of various genitals with stis (laughs) it was horrifying that's like that's like some like world war ii like like you know syphilis prevention for american gis in france kind it was of stuff. awful it was like it was it was it was the worst and it was like it was like i guess supposed to keep us from having sex but it was just like it was so gross cautionary tales what a great way to introduce you to a foreign people <laughs> this is what will happen to your junk if you have too close contact with these foreign people um, yeah, and well, and it's interesting, like, Moiris later said that it wasn't real, it was done with models, but it was hard to tell. Yeah, so they weren't actually cutting off women's nipples and, like, spilling their guts out. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we, like, we don't know, right? Like, you know, uh, but, you know, it's, <sighs> that's the thing, right? Like, horrible shit exists on film. And they could find that stuff and play it. Or they could make it up. Or, you know, like, a lot of this stuff, I mean, the the less stomach-turning portions of, of what they're describing is, like, BDSM porn, basically. Like, now that the internet exists after this novel has been written, that's not that hard to come across. Or something you might see in an 80s horror film. 
Yeah, that's true, actually. Like, this was published at the time of, like, splattercore horror movies and stuff like that, where, like, that really was something that was a popular piece of culture at the time that's maybe not as popular today. She's a student. He's in real estate. From Mission Viejo, California, Christy Knudsen. And from Albion, Michigan, George Pearson. So, a Fred makes a note. She says, sometimes you can find things out on birthdays. So she's speaking to another uh, handmaid and then basically talks about what happened to Moira. We hear the story of Janine talking with um, Aunt Lydia. Yeah, it's a weird choice to have Janine be the one that is like pointed to as the source of this story. Um, Yeah. But Boy, this story is crazy. Mm-hmm. This story is crazy, and Moira is wonderful. Uh, <laughs> so, so basically, Moira was not going to have any of this stuff at the Red Center, and she she we had her uh, escape attempts before, um, but she her 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 grand plan uh, is based around overflowing the toilets in the bathroom. <laughs> Yeah, pretty great. Yeah, so she, like, disassembles a toilet and then causes it to overflow. uh, And, of course, the contents are spewing everywhere, which is great. She's basically moaning Myrtle. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But she, yeah, so she, one of the aunts has to come in. Aunt Elizabeth comes in uh, after Moira has called her. And, oh, the toilets are overflowed. And so Moira does this wonderful thing where she basically captures Aunt Elizabeth and then, like, forces her to undress. She dresses in Aunt Elizabeth's clothes and then binds Aunt Elizabeth with the habit of a handmaid, which is, like, some really powerful symbolism there. Uh, And then she just walks out as if she owns the place. And then, well, right, and then uh, she says to Aunt Elizabeth, like, hey, I could, like, murder you or whatever or just, like, injure you real bad or, like, torture you or whatever. I'm not going to do that. So I hope in the future uh, you'll remember that. And and then uh, Fred says, like, okay, this wasn't actually part of the story, but, like, I got to believe she said something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, she had some great one-liner, like like, out of a Dirty Harry movie or something. Well, and speaking of our friend Dirty Harry, um, this, I mean, this passage felt like Timothy Cavendish's escape in Cloud Atlas. Like, it was that kind of triumphant, like, straight out of a movie. I know um, our uh, number one uh, fan and listener, Dana Victor, was uh, tweeting at us today about how she missed Lars the Swede from the Timothy Cavendish story in Cloud Atlas. And man, if there was a portion of The Handmaid's Tale directed by Lars the Swede, this would be it. This was it. This is Moira's grand escape. Um, but yeah. I can't wait to see this episode on the Hulu miniseries. Right, right. How is that going to be interpreted? I hope just beautifully. Yep. And now, back to Scrabble and Chuck Woolery. About to finish up here, see who's going to play for that bonus of $6,000. At last, we've been circling around this drain the whole time, and we need to finally talk about the birth. I mean, it's honestly pretty uneventful. Like, 
it it's kind of one of the least like I was it was so building up to it and it was like sucky Janine having the baby and I was like oh I bet like Janine's gonna like die horribly in childbirth and it'll be super traumatic for everyone involved but like no it just goes like pretty simply and everyone's happy about it and yeah that's pretty much it but it's but it's you know like I said earlier it's the weirdest event because so the handmaids are all there like coaching and helping janine through this experience and then so the baby is born and it's laid on like the wife is the mother Mm -hmm. it's it even she even says mother and child as she's writing and mother referring to the wife of warren and not janine Right, and after all that buildup of, like, of Janine's pain and the pacing and all of the, like, the descriptions that they do, that she that she does of their, like, all of the odors and the sensations and just kind of the, like, the experience that you're having with her, after all of that, it just gets thrown into the arm of this woman who, like, is just this, like, nervous, skitty thing, like, hopping behind her and then, like, popping out and, like can't even begin to understand what she just went through right and then there's also so uh of fred is talking about the happiness of all of the handmaids uh during this event and she says our happiness is part memory of course referring to any of these women who have had previous children like she had with luke um that's what they're remembering in this moment and so it it can't i mean it's 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 a happiness but it can't be hap- actual happiness it's bittersweet like yeah. everything else yeah i like that she says that um she talks about how somebody spiked the Kool-Aid and um she said that we need our orgies too yeah. yeah, that was kind of crazy. Like, I mean, this is, I guess, the sort of release valve for this whole, you know, uh, buttoned up system, um, both for the the uh, wives and for the handmaids. And uh, I was kind of surprised to see it after how sort of like bleak and spare and cruel the the rest of it is. Not that, not that, like, this excuse is a cruel system. Like, the system is still unbelievably cruel. I was surprised at, like, how much free reign the handmaids were given in this moment. Well, you haven't read this novel before, but, Katie, you have. And I think we'll we'll see later on that, like... Oh, just don't give me spoilers for this novel. I'm not giving you spoilers, no spoilers. But, you know, every culture has to have their release valves. Yep. Yep. May I say hello to my granddaughter who's celebrating her first birthday this week? What's her name? Dallas Ann. Yeah, I don't think so. Quotes of the week. Do we have them? I I have one. Um, Go for it. So, uh, it's... So, Aunt Lydia says something. Um... saying uh, a thing is valued she says only if it is rare and hard to get we want you to be valued girls she is rich in pauses which she savors in her mouth 
Think of yourselves as pearls. We, sitting on our rows, eyes down, we make her salivate morally. We are hers to define. We must suffer her adjectives. And so uh, Fred says, I think about pearls. Pearls are congealed oyster spit. This is what I will tell Moira later if I can. That's my favorite <laughs> from this section. <laughs> That's pretty great. Um, on that note, of, it's funny that you picked a passage that talks about uh, value because my favorite passage is actually the first um, on the first page of the birthday section. She says, sanity is a valuable possession. I hoard it in the way people once hoarded money. I save it so I will have enough when the time comes. So I just think it's, I think it's really interesting that she sees sanity as this finite resource. It's something that she could like lose because she uses it up too quickly. Yeah, and that's, that's not the first reference to sanity in this book either. But sanity is a valuable possession. That's yeah. And perhaps a precious commodity. Indeed. Sky? Hold on, I need to find one. <laughs> There's a lot of great moments, but I think we've actually talked about most of them, so I'm just going to leave that here. Um, okay. Cool. Cool, man. That sounds great. <laughs> well, it's giving me crap because last week, apparently... Neither of us mentioned that we do that quote of the week segment, and so when we asked her for a quote of the week, she was on the spot. And I was oh. just like scrambling. Oh so no! I was, so I was like, "Don't worry about it. Like, you don't even have to have a quote of the week and if like, you don't feel like dude. one." Like, <laughs> so this week, I'm just not gonna do one. We talked well, about all my favorite passages. Way to be a dick, Sky. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that needs to go in the intro. Um, I mean, Please. I might just keep this entire like entirely in the episode because I think it's valuable and funny um <laughs> hey man you don't need the quote of the week i don't have one you do you <laughs> you do you man <laughs> um, life events and other uh notable non-book related things uh so mine this week is going to be a wine recommendation Woo! Ooh. uh mainly because it's what i'm drinking right now but <laughs> Uh, and this is so, so, uh, I have some friends that I, uh, I dog sit for them rather often. Mm-hmm. Cool. And the, the way that they pay me is, uh, quite wonderful and it is usually in wine. Um, so <laughs> this is a bottle that I still had left over from the last time I dog sat for them. And it is a block nine wow. Pinot Noir. And as far as Pinot Noir goes, it's a pretty decent bottle that you can get for under twenty dollars, and uh, I, I'd recommend it. It's 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 kind of fruity, uh, with a nice o- kind of sm- smoked oaky flavor. Uh, but I just like what's on the um, the label. It says, "At Block Nine, we are dedicated to making only Pinot Noir," and that's true. It's all they do is Pinot Noir. But yeah, Block Nine Pinot Noir. What? It's Wait. pretty decent. Katie, can you explain to us why the Dick Wolf Chung Chung Law and Order sound effect is playing behind you? Is it? There's like this weird metallic noise that co- that is. It sounds like a drum. Yeah, like a drum, or it's probably the. Do you have one of those like arms on your uh, microphone? Yes. Yeah, it's probably that. Did I hit the mic? Oh wait, hold on. Let yeah. me see if. Yeah. Try this... it again. Try to get that good, good uh, Law and Order Chung Chung sound. 
Yep, that there it is it. right there. Oh, I bet it's the cord. Chung, chung, ding, 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 ding. I'm going to totally drop in the like actual Law & Order theme at this mm. point. How did um, this happen? What is going on? Is this real life? <laughs> Yo, can I talk about my recommendation? Yes, sorry. Oh, let's continue and finish this up. Uh, I'm actually really excited about this one. So I, I actually saw this a couple weeks ago, but it's um, it's a play that's actually opening on Broadway March 9th, but it's in pre- been in previews up till, to this point. And a couple of weeks ago, I went to go see uh, The Glass Menagerie uh, by Tennessee Williams um, on Broadway with Sally Fields as Amanda. And it was one of the best theater experiences of my life it may have been like one of the best things i've seen like best pieces of live theater i've ever seen in new york if you're in the new york area which i know sounds like super elitist and podcasty but if you're in the new york area please go see it it's amazing you will not regret it i want to go see it like three more times i'm going to recommend a video game which i don't think is something i've ever done on this show before i don't really play a lot of video games however my lifelong obsession slash thing that I do when I have a spare amount of time or just don't want to do anything in particular is the game Spelunky, which is available, it's by a guy named David Yu, and it is available for like free download, so you can like just download it on your PC as as like freeware. Um, And it is a, I mean it's like a very classic roguelike, you know, permadeath adventure platformer. Um, which probably means nothing to most of our audiences um, and didn't to me except like occasionally I'll read things about video games and that's like a very specific kind of game. Um, It's a ton of fun. It's incredibly difficult. When you die in the game, you die in real life and you have to start over. You don't die in real life. But like, you know, it's very easy to die and then you have to start over from the beginning of the game. Um, I've finally gotten to where I can routinely go to the last levels after months of playing this game way too much um and so if you want something that will waste all of your time go download spelunky he plays it all the time it's like some people just play solitaire or whatever when they're like you know don't want to do anything or whatever and i'll play this all right uh so that was this week's section of the handmaid's tale and if you're reading along with us uh, next week, we will be reading section 9, Night, section 10, Soul Scrolls, and section 11, Night. Yo, Soul Scrolls is the name of my late 90s horrorcore album. I certainly hope that it is. <laughs> and for more on Soul Scrolls, please join us next week. I'm Katie. I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren. Thanks for listening. Enter, 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 library loan. Please rate us high, high, high on iTunes. Find us online at illbook.club. On Twitter, we are at illbookcast. Thank you to our generous, smart, beautiful, awesome Patreon donors. We couldn't do it without you. Okay, okay, okay. Back to robot sleep until next week. And I'm like, is this a, some kind of veiled Star Wars reference? <laughs> Help me, Luke. You're my only hope. <laughs> <laughs>